Hello and welcome to episode two of AngelCast with me, Adam Cunis. Me, Alex Lay. And me, George Newbold. Thanks for joining us, George. Um, on this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about our um, kind of hopes and expectations for the forthcoming third edition of The Age of Sigmar, um, which rumours would put uh, around July. We'll see whether the continued COVID situation delays that any further, but um, we know there is a new edition coming. Um, in uh, narrative, we're going to be talking to George Newbold, our games master about uh, Inquisitor uh, or the battle for the Emperor's soul and finally and this feels like it's been an extremely long time coming um, in open play Alex is going to be talking to us all about a little um, game called Necromunda and the Ash Wastes campaign that he is the arbitrator for um, which we really would have quite liked to have played in its entirety quite a long time ago that's been done by now <laughs> yeah it is but good things come to those that wait i guess um just before we jump into um talking about um those sections um i just want to talk to you guys a little bit about any hobby that you might have done um since we last recorded although it's only two weeks ago and for me i've gone months sometimes without hobbying um yeah, I, I did something this morning, actually. I undercoated 11 Orlocks, which is simply because um, with the new expansion packs that have come out, my game's now doubled in size, which is not necessarily what I wanted from the expansion packs, as much as having new models is nice. Yeah. Uh, it's now doubled the amount of work. But it's fine, and the I, I can also say, I can testify, I got the new female Ganga Sculpts from Forge yeah. World yesterday. Um, which I think were released in time for International Women's Day. And if they weren't, then GW you, or Forge World, sorry, you, um, you should claim that. Mm. Um, and they are phenomenal. They are really, really lovely. Um, although I, uh, I did um, very fittingly uh, undercoat them with several layers of my own blood as I stabbed myself with a drill bit, trying to pin them together because they are quite small and it's lots of flat contact points with resin, which I wasn't... Mm. too comfortable without pinning but you know it, it is necromunda so the the you know the blood offering yeah but probably it relevant. Starch. yeah so yeah that's about it really um so in terms of hobby i would say uh, in physical hobby i've achieved nothing uh in the last <laughs> 10 maybe 11 months now okay um um, why, why, is, why is that, George? Uh, that is because I have. Um, uh, that is because I have. Um, uh, um, she a new addition to the family, uh, who is uh, who's keeping us all very busy. She very, very cleverly made a cameo at that exact moment, so she's definitely yeah. got a future in broadcasting. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Uh, well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so in terms of uh, uh, in terms of physical uh, hobby, not very much. Although I've um, put a bit more time into TTS, which has become my uh, my my kind of opportunity to hobby. Mm. Um, uh, you know, in uh, in not if not in person, then uh, then kind of 
digitally. Um, and uh, I've been looking at putting together an Iron Jaws list for TTS, which has mm. been good fun. Um, and, that, and, and there's there's a lot of amazing stuff that's happened on Age of Sigmar TTS in terms of putting coding on uh, to characters to allow, to show range auras and stuff. So you can click on them and they automatically show their auras and things are wholly within, which takes a little bit of time to do, but is uh, worth it when you get to play. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things I've experienced in playing TTS with you is from the first couple of games we had kind of as COVID hit last year, and we were like, oh, I guess things are going to be digital now. Um, it it took hours, uh, as with any kind of digital program, if you're not immediately au fait with that kind of stuff, like I'm not, it took hours to figure out like measuring and stuff not floating up because you've changed the gravity settings mm. and and all of that sort of thing. Um, I'd like to hear a bit about the Iron Jaws list, but I think that's quite a useful segue into our first break and into matched play. Um, so we'll be back with you after this. Welcome back to uh, the matched play section. Um, today we're going to be talking about the Age of Sigma, uh, as we tend to. Uh, and it's been a weird time for Age of Sigma, hasn't it? Really, um, there's plenty of books that have come out that haven't seen physical games in this country. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously been lots of games happening around the world, but obviously you know, there's no data. Can't, you can't trust data sets from uh, from the former colonies, can you? No, there is no data. Honestly, there's no data. It's fake news. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, New Zealand is made up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, nobody could possibly live in such a utopia. I, I choose to believe there's no data. So <laughs> um, we've got AOS three coming out soon. Um, what are our what are our hopes and expectations? Um, I think my, my first hope is that get to go twenty percent points drop. No, I, I'm joking, but. Um, but, but honestly, yes, please. Um, <laughs> so I, I think with um, with the new edition, I, I mean, new editions are always really exciting, aren't they? And uh, and I think everyone looks forward to it. And I and I feel that second edition, Age of Sigmar is amazing to think. You know, we're already on the cusp of third edition Age of Sigmar, isn't it? Um, Six years now. I know, I know, it's amazing. Right. But um, but I feel the game is. Although there are obviously some balance issues, there's there's always balance issues in any games virtual game. Um, I think the game is in a good place. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting things. I think the game system works well. Um, so I hope they don't mess around with it too much. Mm. Um, I, I, I feel like there's a lot of things that aren't particularly broken in terms of the mechanics of the game, so don't need fixing, whereas... I, you know, I can't speak as much for 40k, but but from what I've heard, that was more of an issue with kind of pre um, pre eighth edition and into ninth edition. Um, so I so I hope they don't mess around with it too much. I suspect they will go for smaller boards, mm-hmm. uh, which will be which will be good for more aggressive armies, um, and and hopefully will mean that kind of cage or or control armies like Lumineth or Seraphon uh, or um, uh, aren't, you know, armies that just sit back and cause as much problem for you as possible will have less opportunity to do that before they get smashed in the face by a stone hall. Sounds good to me. 
uh, just to echo that sentiment and actually as a KO player who's currently benefiting from larger boards because of being able to teleport wherever I want um, I do think that I think 40 I think they, that they move 40k in the right direction by kind of making the game a little bit smaller in general so points go up comparatively to board size although I appreciate they may not have got that perfect in the first rounds appreciate mainly tweaking um, I think yeah, we were starting to see games of AOS where there was potentially hundreds of models on the board and it was just, it's, it's not really why I wanted to play it. Yes, it's a mass miniatures combat game, but I would like to see it a little bit more compact. I don't really, I, you know, I noted the other day there was some data, uh, sorry, uh, which doesn't exist, um, that uh, negative player experience was particularly prolific for an army like KO because of the teleporting. But for me, somebody who loves the, the aesthetic of the of the army and the narrative and the fluff of the army, I want to be able to do that, but I want it to be enjoyable for my opponent and for my opponent to be able to deal with it. So yeah, I do think that's a, I do think that's one way of doing it. Sorry, go on. A smaller board gives you less space to teleport away to. So you might be able to pop up on an objective, but actually, you know, any, any reduction that size means two things. First, you might not be able to physically fit there. And second, mm -hmm. if you can get to where you need to be, you're less likely to be so much at arm's reach that you won't be making contact with the opponent for like two turns, right? Yeah, and I think the and I, I think just to add to my my final thought um, on this is, I do think that they've made a mistake with in, in, uh, incumbent terrain pieces in in allegiance abilities. I I, I see why it was a, maybe why it was a thing. I guess it was a way of having a release cycle where you've got an extra model, maybe, which I guess more models equal income. But yeah. I had to faff around so much with my Firestones with that Magmet Battleforge just to pretty much ignore it most games. And it was just like, you would take it because it had one thing it was useful for and I didn't get access to it unless I took it and it was free. Yeah. But I didn't really appreciate having A, B made to buy it or B, having to carry it around because particularly if, you know, George, if you've got a Loom Shrine, you know, it's not a small bit of kit, is it? And it's just, I, I don't know. I just, I get that these models are now out there, and it'd be probably quite problematic for them to suddenly make them redundant. But and Lumineth have just had one confirmed, so it feels like it's not going away anytime soon. But I do think it's a bit of a, a, an error, and I'd like to see the end of that. But I think I'm probably going to be um, disappointed on that front. I think they should have a points cost. Yeah, that's okay. like like they do in forty k, right? And then and then some people will take some the like would get you would still take the loon shrine at hundred points because it gives you immune to battle shock, which is amazing and a and a respawn opportunity and this sort of thing. Um, but I think just having them for free is problematic for for the game, particularly where some armies have access to them and some don't. Um, I, I suspect with points, kind of more generally, that points are going to go up. If you have smaller boards, you can't have 120 grots, sadly, um, because then where can you? You can't fit them on the board, um, and and higher points makes the game more accessible. Because I, I know that they're a model selling company, but they also want people to play the game. And uh, if you tell people, great, you've uh, joined Age of Sigma, fantastic, uh, you need to paint uh, 80 skinks. Uh, before you can start playing your competitive Ooh. army, people will go. Um, where's the nearest? Uh, where's the nearest HMV or game 
I can have to. <laughs> there is no HMV to go to anymore, George. No, well, there is actually. We've got one on uh, on Bath High Street, actually. Really? Oh. Yeah, I know, I know, amazing. Um, but uh, but I I think points are going to go up on that, and I suspect that some of the more recent releases, which have seen quite high points costs for armies like um, Slanesh and um, and Sons of Behemoth, for example, are they're pointed quite highly, and mm-hmm. I wonder whether that's kind of indicative of a of a shift. You know, people are saying that um, Daughters of Cain are, are under underpointed at the moment. Um, I don't know whether that's true, uh, but um, but because I, I haven't I haven't played against them, but I wonder whether there will be a, as happened in forty k a significant points readjustment for the game. Certainly, Hedonites seem to be twenty percent higher than you would expect them to be. Um, we were talking about it in the Hattie Wit WhatsApp the other day, uh, particularly with the uh, the Bliss Barb archers are very expensive for what archers are doing. Um, if you compare them to the Sentinels from Lumineth, for example, um, but um, I think you well, this is your point from earlier, George. So sorry to steal it when we weren't recording, but to bring um, to bring the points up with those more recent books we don't know do we um was your point what the release schedule was supposed to be and when things were supposed to come out we're a year into um not only coronavirus affecting our lives but in terms of the business you know games workshop print their books in one country have their models made in another country um you know we saw this a couple of years ago with the sylvaneth release and talked about it on the podcast um sylvaneth book two was dead in the water when it arrived because it didn't when it was released the meta had already moved on from what it was designed for um because there was that shipment delay in china um due to the 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 trade sanctions i i think that increasing point sizes and reducing board size won't mean they sell less models because it will mean that I need a smaller army and so maybe I can have a second army or maybe if I can actually play games more often I have a bit of extra cash to buy the book for the popular factions you know um, there's a bit of a lag for me in understanding what's going on in the meta because if I'm not going to play Seraphon I'm not going to spend 25-30 pounds on the Seraphon book because I can't afford that. I'd rather buy models for my army. Mm. Whereas actually, if everything's slightly more manageable, somebody will buy, um, you know, if you've got 120 quid left from your hobby budget for the year, you're more likely to buy um, one of the mega gargants. Games Workshop don't care which plastic they're selling to you. So I don't know. And they've also increased their prices by 20%, which makes me wonder if there's a link. Anyway, sorry. No, was, I, I um, completely. I, I had to mute the words out of my mouth. Actually, it'd be nice to be in a. I'd like to be in a situation where, rather than every year, um, I need to buy another gun hauler because I've now can just about squeeze another one in. I'd like to be in a position where I'm like, oh, I've got all of the carriage and overlords that I need for any list ever. Yeah. But I still like painting and I still like building models. So I tell you what, I'm going to pick up. Um, the, the the grave lords because I only need to buy um, 150 quid worth of kits. I only need to paint 40 models. I'm generalising here. Appreciate that because they're not out yet at the time we were recording this. But um, you know, I've only got so much space in the flat. But I'm happy to fill that space. But mm. if, if I can fill it with a greater breadth of choices, that would be wonderful. Um, and I think the other thing I wanted to come back around to because I've seen advocacy 
groups, uh, for want of a better term, because it sounds like a political movement. Uh, um, I know I've seen it particularly, it's mainly in North America, to be honest, people wanting to get rid of the initiative role, uh, um, go home. Yeah, it's, it's, it is the game. Yeah. It's if you don't, if you don't have the potential for the double turn, um, the priority role, you don't have Age of Sigma. Yeah, it's and I'm, I, I I know it shouldn't have to say this aloud, but please don't. It comes back to George's point earlier. There are fundamental mechanics in the game that work. I like the priority role because it means that nothing is absolutely certain, and you've got to plan for it. That's the that's the nuance in the game. Yeah. It's so risk please, reward it, as well, and I think yeah. that um, if anything, a smaller board size will kind of mitigate some of those concerns about the the turn mm. because actually baselining is less effective on a smaller table um assuming they don't reduce movement distances um objectives are easier to get to if you are a fire slayer for example if my objective is only 18 inches on as opposed to 24 inches onto the table great that's like two turns saved for a fire slayer or you haven't got to run for one of those turns so you can charge hooray um yeah i know they're moving for <laughs> um yeah so i think i the if the double turn, if the priority role, sorry, because it's not a double turn, is it really? It's priority for the battle round. And and it isn't always in your favour to take it either. No. Um, that's no. what people forget. You know, if I can give, if I'm in a position where I can give the turn to my opponent and know that they're too far away still, or if I've held back and win the turn, I'm like, yeah, cool. You be over there. You're not going to take me off this objective. You've now wasted two turns of your damage output, for example. The tactical flexibility, but also the reaction to it it's much closer to something like um less i go you go army wise but more like um activation order for necromunda or inquisitor or something where you're like okay so i've chosen to delay my action is essentially the way i look at it um i'm setting up to weather the storm for twice as long because i don't think that you can actually push me to where you need me to and, and that for me is more interesting um maybe with better secondary objective systems that might be less essential but for me the, the double turn must stay i would like to see them do a little bit about magic dominance um whether whether there's some kind of um uh potential penalty for armies that because it, there's at the moment you've really got a few armies that absolutely dominate the magic phase whether it's mm. seraphon whether it's lumineth whether it's um i don't bone reapers potentially with nagash um change, change hosts change sometimes host. does okay in certain yeah. environments yeah absolutely and, and to the point where some armies literally just don't take casters so you know in more tribes there's really there's a great magic law pointless in my mm. personal opinion with list building because you know you're never going to cast any butcher spells when your opponents are like plus six to dispel or whatever it is or, or you know or can just auto unbind anything um and and I, I think magic is an integral part of the game and i think it's really important that it stays i just wonder whether there should be a greater penalty so you can't just cast 15 spells a turn and laugh at your opponent two and, words and, Dimensional cascade. That's it. Have a miscast table. Matt's yeah. been talking about it for years. Um, have a, have a miscast table. If you roll a double twelve, uh, double six, or a double one, your wizard blows up. Great. We have mortal <laughs> wounds in the game. You don't need to kill them like you did in um, like you did in fantasy. I can see why 
that's a huge risk reward when we've got like 600 800 point wizard gods yeah okay they don't die but take d6 mortal wounds on teclis if you roll a natural double six Teclis doesn't roll yeah make him roll for a start <laughs> You know, make him roll and make there actually be some like danger to it. I mean, it's not quite as bad as priests, right? Which you can't even unbind or dispel. <laughs> it's just like, no, oh, I'm going to do this. No, I'm going to re-roll it because of my free terrain piece. And I'm like, uh, okay, thanks. Corn have a negative, but but yeah, sorry. Okay. No, corn have a negative. Fire slayers did didn't. Uh, it wasn't always. It was always basically a coin toss as to whether you were going to get it off or not which is fair right so it was always nearly always a four plus which went to three if you did stand near the aforementioned yeah. like forge. um i think magic could actually just do the complete overhaul and there was nothing wrong with the old magic dice pool system it doesn't reduce accessibility into aos i think rick Priestley made a comment uh, in the interview he did for the, the lord of the for middle earth where he said that Yes, AOS was meant to be a simplification of wargaming, but actually people do like depth and complexity. I mean, for anyone who sticks around after this segment, we're going to talk endlessly about Inquisitor. Um, and I, I do think Magic needs an overhaul because, it, you know, even 40K has got your powers of the warp in there, and that's been in, in the game for 20 years. And, and it's it been in the game sense. because because of magic in Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Like, you have Battle Magic as an expansion for yeah. the third or fourth edition of... Of fantasy that's why that's why those characters are exciting you know yeah. whether it's you know six dicing uh cacophonic choir or black uh, purple sun uh, yeah. you know there has to be jeopardy yeah you, you want those big plays and yeah. you know that's what makes games memorable i honestly can remember more about magic happening in games from eighth edition and there's a lot i didn't like about eighth edition but for me magic in aos i'm like okay the thing happens because i'm not nagash or nowadays the thing happens because techless and mm-hmm. it's so non-interactive yeah that, um, and that's the problem interactivity which is the other reason why i think mortal wounds were a little bit problematic when they first came out because again they weren't interactive they made them interactive because things started getting access to a mortal wound save. But now and suddenly we're, we're back in a position where maybe they're a bit not pointless, but they're nowhere near as useful as they used to be. So so now suddenly accessibility to them has gone through the roof. And it's a strange um, second level of damage, I think, at the moment, because so so much ignores them and so much causes them that they're basically just a, a, it's like a, a parallel stream of doing damage. Like it, it, it's no different really anymore to doing regular damage and having rend. Yeah, you know, exactly. People have redundancy yeah. to it in spades and there's less access to it for some armies and more for others. Um, I'm going to wrap us up because I don't want to talk for too long about this. Um, just a couple of my thoughts. I want, uh, as we said when GHB 2018 and 19 came out, there should be points for allegiance abilities. There should be points for artifacts. There should be um, actual, you know, if you're if you're playing an army that has a terrain piece, there should be points for it. You know, if I'm paying thirty quid to buy a pizza oven for my fire slayers or a strange kind of um, hovering waterfall for my lumineth, it should be pointed. Um, it, it just should be because there are armies that don't have access to that. And um, I would like to play games, particularly on a smaller board. We talked endlessly in a previous podcast about how impossible it was to actually place terrain on the board. 
you know, when, I know they fixed it with an FAQ, but remember when Skaven Norholes physically didn't fit on the table? Yeah. It needed an FAQ. Like, they, these things need to have points so that you can justify breaking the core rules to use them. Um, that, that's my kind of final thought on that. George, you're going to say something? No, no, I, I'm just, I, I completely agree. All right, cool. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully points, smaller boards, um, meaning smaller armies that cost more points, allowing us to paint some different things and have a better understanding of the, the game in general. And get rid of one drop. Let's just, let's yeah. just get rid of that. It's, it's snuck back, back in a bit, hasn't it? it yeah, has, may, may, maybe looking at the way battalions interact with um, the setup of the game is something that they'll do. So join us after the break where we'll be talking um, about narrative play Welcome back. Today in narrative play, we are going to be talking about the battle for the Emperor's Soul. Uh, that's right, the game Inquisitor, which came out in 2001, so 20 years ago. Um, if you weren't around 20 years ago, uh, <laughs> which is really possible, um, or if you've never heard of or played Inquisitor, um, the Inquisition are a shadowy group of uh, individuals who... Um, theoretically at least, work for the Imperium of Man in the Warhammer 40,000 setting. Um, Inquisitor was a bit of a departure as a game for Games Workshop, back towards something a bit more uh, like a role-playing game or perhaps like first edition of 40k with Rogue Trader. It is wildly complicated as a game system, uh, which is one of the reasons I love it. And it is also unapologetically not balanced in any way which is why we're talking about it in narrative it is a way of telling the kind of um back alley um dark stabbings in wherever secretive espionage based stories uh, that we know and love probably the most famous uh inquisitor in terms of the canon is inquisitor gregor eisenhorn um there's a new eisenhorn book coming out soon and there was a 28 millimeter scale eisenhorn model for the black library celebration possibly in 2018, because um, I've certainly had it on my desk for a few years, um, but around that time. Um, and Dan Abnett was commissioned to write the original Inqu uh, Eisenhorn Inquisitor series to coincide with the release of the Inquisitor game. Um, and it's grown to be much more than that. And Inquisitors, although they're an old archetype from Warhammer 40,000 and all the way back in Rogue Trader uh, with trilogies such as uh, Ian Watson's Inquisition War, which is batshit insane. <laughs> like it is the most 80s non-specific sci-fi i've ever heard plus a space marine um yeah so inquisitor's great um but we've moved a long way from that those times the game used to be in 54 millimeter scale which is as we said last time uh, about twice as big as warhammer models from 20 years ago and about a third bigger than the ones today uh, the scale creep is real guys um, beautiful models though yeah and and george we actually met through inquisitor um which i think is an anecdote that has been recorded before but maybe you could tell uh, your side of um that particular story yeah that, that fateful meeting um so i played inquisitor when i was quite a lot younger it was one of those one of the games and, and uh, the background really kind of stood out for me at a time when 
because um, I remember second edition 40k, which was very kind of cartoony, and you had um, and you had orcs, which were looked an awful lot like Nazis, and um, you had uh, you had all sorts of kind of crazy stuff. And then the Inquisitor book, I think, came out just before third edition 40k, and or around the same kind of time. Similar. Uh, it was three years later, third edition 40k okay. was 1998 with the Black yeah. Templars and the Dark Eldar. Um, I could be wrong there. But it was a it was similar a time, time in the design period. Um, yeah. It was it was post-Mordheim as well, which was yeah. um, 1999. It was the first entrance of Grimdark. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I was just going to say, you know, it's a, it's a very kind of um, dark in tone. And what I really like about the game is it's uh, shades of grey, right? Um, there's no kind of heroes at all. Uh, all of the Inquisitors, you know, you you, as you can very simplify in, Inquisitor factions into Puritan Inquisitors who want to kind of keep the um, uh, who want to keep the uh, Imperium as a as a totalitarian state. Um, wouldn't really describe them as heroic. They they you know <laughs> they're they're um, you know very happy to. Well. Yeah, very happy to burn people alive and you know all this sort of stuff. And then you've got radical inquisitors who want to kind of change the Imperium, but are willing to consort with demons and aliens and so on. So, you know, there, there's no morality is a is a very hazy thing in Inquisitor, which is why I think it makes for such an interesting setting. And you can design characters, you know, that fit the morality of you or or the, or the story that you want to tell. Yeah, and for me, it's just, it's just struck me thinking about it, but it's that kind of Walter White Breaking Bad um, thing, isn't it? Like, So uh, I'll, I'll talk about this a bit more later on, but for once, I'm playing more of a kind of puritanical inquisitor, whereas historically, um, I've always had like very kind of out-and-out radicals because that's been quite interesting to explore narratively. But you have this kind of good guy, and you know that anything that happens in the games is going to be awful, morally just atrocious um and wherever you think your character is going even more so than in my experience of dnd that's not going to be the end goal yeah so i think what struck me is that the opening paragraph of the rule book or at least the the, the i don't want to say fluff law in the mm. rule book is some imperial officers just uh, having a conversation near the golden throne and the conversation is effectively, yeah, we think the emperor's actually dead. Yeah, like he's not coming back, guys. This is all. What what do we do? And that's where you get that schism immediately because one side goes, no, he's not dead. He's fine. Mm. And the other side goes, no, he really is. We probably should tell people. Yeah. Um, and that just sets the tone of this complete fluid morality. And my love of the 40k universe which is why i love necromunda which we're going to talk about later is the peaks behind the curtain of not just i am space marine and i save the world it's mm. the the complexity of this sort of this this mass this this imperium that is fetid and basically dying and really hard to keep alive and it's it's now so lost in its own bureaucracy that you can't that it, it you, it's almost indistinguishable right and wrong is indistinguishable basically mm. it's sort of um it, it's really interesting to kind of look behind the curtain at the kind of ungovernable masses 
of humanity um you know 40k up until the point of inquisitor coming out was mostly focused on as you say space marines or the imperial guard or you know you're fighting against whether it's orcs wearing nazi hats or orcs dressed up as um native americans or or, or whatever it was that was kind of the 80s and 90s um kind of fantasy port into science fiction here you've got well, it's noir, isn't it? It's mm. it's it's neo noir. It's 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 a lot closer to somebody like Deckard from Blade Runner um, as a kind of character archetype, where you're going, okay, well, actually, people are bad as well, um, and people in a totalitarian, galaxy-spanning fascist state. Which you know, if you're going to have a political allegory, and if Games Workshop is going to produce content that is um, condemning or reflective of the world we live in then that's going to be super interesting. And you've got then different interactions with alien races. For example, one of the kind of initial releases was a, um, an Eldar Ranger. There's a, um, there's a Crute Hunter model available in, in, well, not available, like super not available. But 20 years ago, it was vaguely available. Um, so you have these kind of desperados and it's more, <clears throat> it's more akin to something like the Wild West, which actually, if you read the designer's notes towards the end of the Inquisitor rulebook itself, um, Jarvis Johnson talks a lot about um, earlier roleplay games that he played growing up. Um, and obviously there's, you know, earlier in the uh, earlier in RPG existence around when D&D was taking off, there were quite a few kind of Wild West role-playing games and things like that so that's that's mm -hmm. kind of where it leaves us so george you decided um to kind of direct i suppose a campaign a story um an inquisitor story kind of at least 10 years on from when you and i um met through inquisitor um what was the kind of jumping off point for that was it story a desire to play the game um i think there's a few different things um i think it on the on the most basic thing it's an opportunity to meet up some friends and have some fun right yeah. and what i love about inquisitor is you know there's not you you don't win scenarios right there's there's it's not like a points based system where oh you you score these objectives so you you get your 20 points and you you know the tournaments kind of system I mean, it absolutely does not work as a competitive format at all um, and would force people to act in ways that aren't narratively correct. And what really rewards as a game is when you have people who are um, confident enough to kind of stick to their characters and aren't going to try and kind of win scenarios and that sort of thing, which is why I think it works very well if you've got a group of you know, like-minded people around you or people who just want to laugh and don't mind if their character gets minigunned in the genitals, um, which is what I think happened to Alex's character on the first time. He was already a demon host, so his, his genitals would have been questionable as it was. Uh, but, so they yeah. didn't have the minigunned off. Was... Yeah, certainly questionable afterwards. Uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And um, so, so I wanted to do that, but I also, I, it gave me a bit of a project during lockdown as well to kind of create a narrative and a story. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd already been thinking about it and then COVID hit and we went, right, well, I think we might have to delay this a little bit until later in 2020. And then we looked at it and went, might have to delay this until March of 2021. And then we might have to look and then go, we'll delay it till summer 2021, which is where we currently are at the moment. 
Um, yeah. But it's given me the opportunity to, you know, refine the setting, explore what it, the story that I want to tell as well, um, which is hopefully going to be quite a deep um, and, and, you know, morally grey story where no one kind of emerges happy, mm. which it sounds really, really depressing. But actually, I think um, it, I think in the role of the games master, I haven't really done a huge amount of games mastering before, but myself, but when I've seen it done well, um, it's where you give, you create a sandbox and a, a you know, a kind of a, a narrative framework for people to tell the stories that they want to tell with their characters. Yeah, I, 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 I just wanted to con um, concur on the, the creative element of it as someone who has recently segued into the game because of being invited to, 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 to um, participate in this campaign. I think particularly during lockdown where your scope of hobby is much narrower because obviously you can't necessarily physically play games, although I appreciate TTS as a thing. Um, I very much enjoyed just holding up with the, the rule book and designing characters. And I think I might have designed about six or seven different characters before I settled on the three that I wanted to take forward into this campaign. And it was that, that just, just sitting down and having a think about that and even doing some little sketches about what they would look like or uh, writing a few sentences of a backstory and how they may know each other or not know each other or, you know, could have screwed each other over in the past, whatever. Just that component of it in, in a situation like COVID where you are struggling for stimulus was 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 um, just really rewarding hobby time in its own right, despite playing the game. That's really exciting to hear, considering you're a new player to Inquisitor. Um, I've been playing it more or less since the start, 20 years ago. And one of the things that I particularly enjoy, and Mike, who's also in the campaign, who I grew up with um, and who um, has played a lot of Inquisitor, um, even my new characters, and they're completely... A new set of people from the people I was playing games with and writing stories about 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, there are little narrative references in their backstories that, you know, and I've known George since we went to university in 2007, but there's narrative references in the stuff that I'm writing now about new characters that Mike might get if he does some close reading that will never come up in a game, will never be relevant to this new generation of characters but you are just free to explore and to just kind of have that re self-referential stuff. And I've got, you know, characters in my head that I've never made a model for. Um, people who are talked about kind of offstage characters. Um, so it's really exciting to, to yeah. visit that kind of stuff. So it's, it's great to hear you go, well, I wrote seven or eight characters and I'm only going to play with three of them, but they, they now exist. So whether or not you push them into a character sheet or not, how rich is the story of the characters you're going to tell if there's people they know that I don't know and that the other players don't know? It makes it's, them um, real. It, in a it's world building, isn't it? Is that yeah. 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 Well, I was going to say that kind of links directly into the points I was going to say about creating the campaign and creating the world of um, Petrograd, which is the, the setting for our campaign when we get to, you know, one day play it in 2028 <laughs> or something like that. In um, the 41st millennium. Well, exactly. 42nd now, you know, <laughs> they've updated the canon. Yeah, true. Um, um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it, 
whilst I wasn't creating characters in the same extent as as you guys were, like you know, populating populating the world, um, what I wanted to do was to was to really kind of delve into some of the uh, less known aspects of the forty k universe, and and I've really gone back to um, some you know some road trader stuff, and there's there's all sorts of interesting things to explore, and um, the setting of the world is essentially it's a it's a mechanicus forge world uh neighboring the gothic sector um but it's uh there's a, there's a lot beneath the surface um and uh and um the world itself you know in in the background i wanted to give a sense of that in terms of its uh it's although it's heavily populated at the time that the mechanicus arrived it was a, essentially a dead planet um there, there were no habitable life forms uh, at all um, although abundant in kind of natural uh, natural materials and water and so on, and uh, also heavy amounts of fossil deposits, which essentially showed that there was abundant life, but something happened uh, in the distant past, uh, which essentially uh, wiped the slate clean, as it were. And, uh, and, and part of the story is kind of uncovering that mystery and finding out what's been going on and what lies at the heart of Petrograd, which is that the... Uh, the, the name of the campaign. And just from um, a kind of canon point of view, why did you select for it to be a mechanicus world? You know, in terms of inquisitors v everybody, why why did you make mechanicus? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. So um, I think th there's always a little bit of an issue with the Inquisition in terms of how much power they wield, right? Because essentially they wield unlimited power. Uh, they, if you go into, you know, modern 40K, um, rule books and codexes and that sort of thing the inquisition have the have the power to essentially you know requisition entire guard regiments they can just turn up and say every single soldier now works for me and if you don't like it tough and um, they have the power to have a, you know a planet um exterminatist which is eradicated um but the the mechanicus operates outside of the kind of existing imperial system to an extent you know they're, they're semi-autonomous within the imperium and i and i thought that that might make for an interesting conflict uh where the mechanicus might not like the inquisition poking their noses into their private business and and you know wouldn't just turn around and say oh yes inquisitor here's the red carpet um they're they're, they're more likely to say um don't know what you're talking about at best and sorry you found out too much at worst draws pistol <laughs> or mech and android draws pistol indeed indeed so i think it makes for an interesting opportunity and and, and i think with inquisitor in, in an ideal world what you would have is you have kind of a rolling sprawling campaign that could last you know multiple weeks uh, but i don't think you know works necessarily if particularly for myself because i i don't live in london makes it more difficult to to do on that sort of basis so i thought you know i'll try and do like a condensed campaign that runs over a series of a few weeks kind of in game time um which will you know give us kind of a sense of building um building narrative tension and you know and a, and a, and a payoff at the end so i guess from that i had two sort of couple of follow-up questions one just for those who don't know anything about this game from a, a very basic point of view how does it work what is the system and secondly, when as a GM, you, you know, you've spoken about you focusing on these areas of canon, 
to create interesting conflicts, etc. But when you've actually got players on the board fluidly controlling their own characters, what little what what process are you going through to keep them on track uh, with how you see things going? Because also, I guess there's a there's a dichotomy between how you want things to go and how they organically evolve, and you don't want to um, you know get rid of the latter because that's part of the enjoyment, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll pick up the second point first, I guess. Um, I think with the uh, um, when you're playing a when you're playing a, a game of Inquisitor, you know, it's it's like the classic thing: no no plan survives contact with the enemy. And although I wouldn't describe play, the, the the players as the enemy, um, I also would expect um, that things don't go according to plan. And uh, and Essentially, I would set kind of loose objectives that that you would expect the characters to kind of aim for, whether it's um, whether it's uh, gaining access to some intel or whether it's uh, rescuing someone or something like that, and then and then and then you see what happens and you kind of roll with it, um, quite literally. So uh, so you know, I think flexibility is really important as a GM if you if you say sorry. You know, you can't do that because that doesn't work with the narrative. Then you're stuffed, which which makes for designing scenarios. It's really important to just you know go okay. So here's a loose goal, um, and then roll some dice and see what happens. You know, and uh, and and make your decisions. And then I think that's I think that's the more fun way of doing it. And you give the players the freedom and the flexibility. And and sometimes a GM will have to step in if there's you know a character is doing something that is very much out of character you mm. might say would they actually do that mm. um uh and and equally if it doesn't suit the narrative like you don't want all your characters dying in the first scenario for example so the gm can say you know you you've uh, taken a critical injury or or um there's a really good example from the um rule book actually where uh uh one of the characters i think is a cultist um does a kind of a jump across from one building to another and uh, and you know he's kind of sailing through the air and uh, and and fluffs the risky action roll and plummets to his death, and um, and the GM said, well, that's not very heroic, is it? So uh, so um, the character instead is kind of holding on to the gutter by a single hand and drops all of his weapons, but doesn't get killed, and it keeps the narrative going and keeps the story going and keeps the players involved because you don't, you know, one character's character, one player's character is getting obliterated and then they sit there for another two hours whilst the others roll dice and they get a bit bored because that's rubbish so you know it, i think there's a, there's a lot of things going on in terms of wanting to keep players involved and keep players engaged and um and flexibility i think is really important so um, as a as a gm you have to avoid being kind of grr martin yeah absolutely absolutely at least until the end yeah yeah, and a, then, well, a well-timed death can certainly serve a narrative well, but absolutely, um, absolutely. And then uh, the, 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 your first question: How does the system work? So, uh, as Adam was saying earlier, it's it's there's there's no kind of point system. So the rule book, which is an absolute joy, and I would encourage anyone to look at it. It's available for free online because Games Workshop, in there, one of their nicer moments, decided to make the PDF and a, a publicly available document, basically. Um, so you can see so if you just type in Inquisitor rulebook, it will just immediately come up. Um, and there's a there's a wonderful um, 
uh, forum called the Conclave, which is actually how Adam and I met. Um, and you know, I, I've come back because I don't think I have told that story. But um, mm. but um, uh, that there's all sorts of amazing resources. And, and as a GM, I am very much standing on the shoulders of future of sorry of previous giants who have done a lot of the hard work basically in terms of designing character sheets and designing non-player characters and so on, which I have uh, appropriated for my purposes. Um, but, but how does the game work? So it's a essentially it's a D100 system. So you roll D10s um, and uh, one is tens and one is units. And you've got lots of different st uh, stats, which are uh, similar to 40K, things like weapon skill and strength and toughness, but also uh, things like initiative, which is really important, which tells you how much stuff you can do in a turn. Um, it's, it, it works down for initiative order, so, the, so the, the speediest characters go first and the, and the thickest characters go last, essentially. Um, so if you've got servitor, you're always waiting until everyone else is gone. But if you hit, you'll kill some. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially you've got like a multi-melter for an arm or something like that, which is, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, it, it works on percentages, basically. So so let's say you want to fire a pistol, and as a character, you, uh, as a player, you can basically decide whatever actions you want your characters to make, you know, and, and within the degree of possibility, that's fine. So let's say you want to... Uh, let's say you want to jump off a building and try and try and you know then the percentage and, and grab hold of a moving train you can um, your percentages of it working are very low uh, but if you pull it off brilliant um, there's also a, a risky action element so if something is deemed risky then if you roll more ones and sixes you are going to have failed your risky action which is which is quite useful yeah so just um, to clarify on that initiative uh kind of defines who goes in what order and how many actions they can take um and you have a uh, is it is it 10 percent of your initiative gives you your speed uh not not quite not it's quite. for every 20 initiative uh, okay. you get one action plus one so oh, okay so, so let's say you've got initiative 40 you would get th uh you would get three actions yeah uh, sorry 41 the, the, the actions are um, how many things you can attempt to do, which are seem to take a few seconds. So simple action is walk. Uh, you can run, you can sprint, you can reload your gun, you can have a chat, you can combine some of those things. Um, you can maybe walk and talk, although some of us struggle with that in real life. Um, and the, the speed is uh, where you roll D6. So George is referring to more ones than sixes. Um, you it's a weird order for those of us who play competitive kind of matched pointed games. Um, you say what you're going to try to do and then you see if you have enough attempts to do it. So say I'm speed six and I want to run over there, reload my gun, aim at somebody, shoot, and then duck back into the shadows. I roll 66. Um, and if I'm trying to do it stealthily, that's risky. So if there are more ones on the dice than there are six, then I'm not able to uh to do that as efficiently as i might like and that might be up to games master interpretation uh as to whether i drop the gun making a loud non-stealthy noise or whether i get there realize that i haven't actually been quiet enough and don't take the shot so there's there's a bit of a back and forth and if you don't roll it's on you, you get the action so to speak on a four plus 
Mm. So you say you're rolling six dice, you're only likely to get three of those actions to happen. So I might be intending to go over there and do something, but I don't quite get there and do it. And what I like about that system is if you're playing what the character's intentions were for, say, 30 seconds, which is about the length of a turn, then if I didn't quite get to do the thing I wanted, I actually have to take some checks and like make some decisions. Like I'm going to carry on doing the thing I was doing unless something happens to me in the meantime. And then I have to make a decision as a player as to whether I'm going to carry on with my plan or if, you know, aforementioned Servitor with a melter gun arm is now shooting at me, maybe my plan changes slightly. Um, so it's quite, um, it's quite fluid. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and I think in terms of, um, you know, when you're when you're playing the game, it, it can seem very overwhelming at first because there's a lot of things to keep uh, check of. So this is why Inquisitor, there's the scale of it and why it was signed at 54 mil is because most players are probably going to be using two, maybe three characters maximum. Which, which is obviously different to even Necromunda, where you've got gangs of you know ten or, or more people at any one time, and you have to have a character sheet and and um, and you kind of keep log of injuries and and so on. So it can seem quite overwhelming in terms of bookkeeping, but having a GM there just to you know mm. just to say you know the, don't forget you need to add to your injuries or uh, or let's don't forget you need to recover um and also there's some amazing cheat sheets which have been designed which basically you know condense the rule book down into two sides of paper which makes things much easier i think i'd probably just define it as sort of like a skirmish tabletop rpg it, it's so um it's so reliant on things like um, Dungeons and Dragons, mm -hmm. um, you know, the character sheet is there, you have um, a nerve check and, you know, you have willpower and all of these kind of slightly more holistic sounding statistics that hark back to something like Rogue Trader. Um, but unlike D&D, &D, where a lot of it's in your head, you don't necessarily need a character model, it's very much a visual miniatures game. Um, and the 54 millimeter models were such a design departure for the studio at the time i think to reflect the uh the desire for character and detail you know um my inquisitors always seem to be fighting with everything and the kitchen sink whereas you might have a simple character who's a priest of wherever um you know just literally has a robe and might have to improvise weapons as they go along and, and that would still be fitting and that character would still have um a way of existing and unlike something like DD &D, where you might have a map for each floor and you would move up a kind of multi but two-dimensional environment inquisitor was very much designed to play on the sort of board that you might play Inquis uh, necromunda on where it's three-dimensional and if there's cover that affects the game in a much more um well, three-dimensional way than it would do in other role-playing games. Line of sight is a thing in a three-dimensional environment that it can't really be in a typical role-playing environment. I think that's perhaps why Inquisitor never really succeeded in the long term when it was originally released, because you're asking players not only to use models of a different scale, but also to design terrain and design boards which are of a completely different scale, which offers, often aren't compatible with 40K or Necromunda. And, and then you're, you know, that's a huge outlay for players and a huge effort. 
which is which is difficult to uphold. So I I, I wonder had they released it at twenty eight mil mm. as a kind of forty um, k RPG system, whether it would have had more long term play based success, perhaps. I mean, then you wouldn't have had beautiful models like uh, like yeah. Eisenhorn and Artemis and things like that, which I still put think Artemis is one of the best models they've ever produced. Um, yeah, I, I actually remember when the game came out because well, we were obviously uh, a fair amount younger. Um, and I remember when the, the actual launch campaign was very much like this game is not suitable for anyone under the age of 18. Um, and they really, I remember to even get on the website, there was a password. Do mm. you remember? Um, and it was the password was the ends, or the ends justify the means. Um, and even so, obviously, I was so excited about the models and um, and, and the setting. Uh, I went and bought the Inquisitor Covenant um, starter set and the uh, and the rule book. And obviously, immediately was too young to really make head nor tail of it. And then did what you used to do back then, which was to ring um, the the Games Workshop helpline and basically with a very strapline question of. I don't really know how this works. Is there any way of finding out? And yeah. they did kind of close the conversation down with, how old are you? And I was like, 10. Yeah. And they were like, it's, it, you're not really meant to be playing it. So I think tying back in, going full circle to what you were just saying there, George, I think they had a very, they wanted it to be an adult game for adults and adults to do adult things, which sadly may have been its undoing a little bit, actually. Had it been 20 millimeter and that little bit more accessible. Um, I do think it was partly motivated by they just wanted uh, a reason to have adult evenings in store and things like that. So it was it was a reason, it, you know, there was there was definitely a bit of, um, I don't know how to describe it, there was definitely a bit of a, like a target audience in mind and they were quite fiercely defensive over it, which is sadly probably been its undoing in the long term. And that was very much the case with Games Workshop as a company in general in the early 2000s, right? Um, they were coming off expanding from being a very, very small company in the 80s and early 90s into suddenly having loads of success. <laughs> Speaking of, you know, Inquisitor and shadowy stuff going on, I happened to re-watch Enemy of the State the other day, Will Smith, uh, Gene Hackman film um, that seems incredibly prescient in terms of um, how the NSA operates and the kind of surveillance culture we live in today it's a 1998 film so a couple of years before this game came out right um similar sort of time to the matrix coming out and whatever and will smith's actually reading a white dwarf because it's set in baltimore and that's where they had the, the games days in it um but the games workshop was a rapidly changing company at that point i mean if you think about the kind of classic games that we talk about um and i don't think it's just because we're all of the age where that was 20 years ago and it's nostalgia but you have epic you have um warmaster you have battlefleet gothic you have necromunda mordheim um all sorts of game systems coming out and they absolutely had target audiences because they weren't i think as confident in going right here are the broad brush strokes here's a set here's here's Warcry, but you can also have shade spy you can also have warhammer skirmish you can also play to sigma at three different points values you know they were very very 
anxious about the internet. I mean, the Games Workshop web store was terrible until about two years ago, let alone 20 years ago. They did have mail order, though. They did have mail order. Mm. Um, And, you know, it was a small enough company that they weren't bankrupting themselves by doing a bit service at that point, you know, which was incredible. And we were, I know that the three of us... Just take a moment of silence for the bit service. Thank you. Glorious, glorious days. But it meant that, you know, people, particularly when Inquisitor came out, people were ordering, like, the sword from a demon prince, and Games Workshop had to cast in white metal an entire demon prince to get the sword to sell it for 50p to an Inquisitor player. They were bankrupting themselves doing stuff like that. Um, You know, I remember the Games Workshops in Sheffield and Wakefield having a veterans night, and as a a pre-adolescent and then a teenager... You couldn't, you basically weren't allowed in the store those evenings. Um, it was pretty exclusive. Uh, and if we think about how Games Workshop are as a global company today, um, for very good capitalist reasons, they are a very inclusive com- company that wants to give access to their games. I think if you were to be in the business meetings today about, okay, we're going to release, let's take Necromunda as an example, we're going to bring Necromunda back that meeting will have been a billion miles away from, you know, Jarvis and Gav Thorpe and John Blanche talking about um, the battle for the Emperor's soul and whenever they started writing it, 98, 99. Like, the company is not recognisable. And I think the setting has changed too. Um, but it's it's interesting in, in kind of looking at, you know, I don't think Games Workshop could invent a game like Inquisitor today because they would be accused of ripping off other stuff. Whereas at the time, it's like Games Workshop are doing an RPG. They've done it before, but they're now known as a miniatures company. So, of course, that's what they're doing. And it doesn't matter if it's financially successful because, you know, it's the 40K setting. They'll sell enough, uh, like, 54 mil Space Marines to painters to fund the whole thing. And then if it's down the can in a year's time, as George says, let's release the game as a PDF on the internet. And, um, you know... I do remember vividly in about 2005, four years after it came out, maybe maybe a bit later than that, but being asked not to play it in a games workshop because the new policy was you can't play games here that our staff don't know and that we don't sell. It became mail order only um, because you can't have people coming into store saying, oh, cool, what are you doing? And it not be something that's accessible. So it was kind of... Yeah, testing the water and that sort of thing. Um, George, I wanted to talk to you about, so obviously Petrograd is where we are going to be playing and we're going to be playing in person and we have been making Inquisitor 28 mil scale models, which again, with the modern kind of plastic production techniques we've got, um, the 28 mil models are as detailed as the 54 mil models were 20 Mm. years ago. More, I think. More, yeah, in fact. We're not doing that, are we? We're playing on TTS. So um, talk a bit about what happened and um, where we are now. So basically I got frustrated because um, things were just kind of being pushed back and I, and I thought I want to play some Inquisitor and um, also I thought it would be a good idea for people to kind of learn to play it who hadn't played it before and also for those who have played it to kind of refresh themselves. And, and so I thought, right, is it possible to do this on TTS? And the answer was categorically yes. Um, and, and the reason why is because there are some truly brilliant people on TTS who have designed Necromunda boards, kill team boards, which are 
beautifully detailed. I mean, the last map that we were playing on was, as you know, it was a cultist lair. Mm. I cannot think the hundreds of hours that must have gone into the designing of like the textures and the equipment and like, and it, and it gives a really amazing sense. And yeah, that was free. I was just trawling through Necromunda boards and I found and I thought, yes, I'll just download that one and immediately appears in my TTS workshop. And I was like, well, that's excellent. It's a bit and easier then, than building a 54 mil table like we did at uni. So literally thousands of hours and a lot of cans of uh, <laughs> spray paint. Jesus. Do you remember how much tin bits we went through? I think we went through 15 pots of tin bits painting a board. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, because I think we decided to tin bits the entire floor, didn't we? Which was insane. <laughs> why, why we didn't why buy it, use an airbrush? Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea. No idea. Um, but, you know, um, so so that's the first thing. So massive shout out to all those people who design things for the workshop on TTS. You guys are heroes. And that's the same for Age of Sigmar as well, you know. Um, and then the other thing is uh, 3D scanning which uh, allows you to import, you know, you can, and I appreciate this is not entirely legal. So we'll go with the legal versions, which is where people are able to 3D scan their purchased models and import them into, uh, and import them into TTS. And, um, and then you get a little 3D avatar of the character. And, um, and that means that, uh, um, that that means that you uh, can then download download a, a pack of let's say someone's painted up all the uh, Blackstone Fortress models. Uh, you can just download their three D scans and uh, and then you've got those models and you can just put them straight into the uh, Necromunda map and 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 then you've got your characters. And you know yes, you lose some sense of the character creation, which is why. I designed prefabricated characters for the campaign because I was like, well, you know, we've got the models. So I started with the models and then and then went from there. Whereas normally if in Quizzes, you start the other way around, you start the character and then you build the model to 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 fit. Um so yeah, and, and that's that's how it's worked. And it's mostly worked well. I think we've struggled a little bit with establishing a sense of scale. Um, just because uh just because uh, of the of the limitations of the TTS system and measuring you either have inches or centimeters inches is too far um, and and centimeters are too short especially for movement and if you've got a slow character you basically move down the corridor and that's your game yeah so, just a point of clarity at 54 mil scale where the models are about twice as big an inch is equivalent to what a foot or a yard uh, a yard uh, a yard so, um, you know, if you're walking, you move four yards per action and, you know, so on. Um, a centimetre is obviously less than half an inch. You've got two and a half centimetres to an inch approximately. Um, so it doesn't scale particularly accurately to um, 28 mil. And actually, we've scaled to less than half. So everything slows down by 10, 15 percent. And Alex, I know you're your character and the recent one was particularly slow coming down a corridor, but it was yeah. in character to be walking. It was in character to be walking, but I think that it's the mechanic of you don't know how many actions you're going to get because it's on a dice roll. So there was a couple of turns where I just didn't roll four plus and it's just sort of stood there. So he gets one action because you always get one. Um, a step which is what which which is fine. Like you don't want to moan about it because it's still an awesome game going on in the background. But um it yeah, it if you're spending too long just walking down the corridor, then it, it 
does need sort of expediting a little so, bit. So, so George I, just kind of picked him up and moved him. <laughs> so, so I think what we'll do next time is we'll try 1.5 centimeters as our scale, which I think is what people who regularly inquest to 28 mil use actually. Um, and I'm hoping to have commissioned some. 1.5 centimeter custom rulers to which have yard measurements on it so that when we do meet in person we have measuring sticks yeah and that makes sense because i mean as we said before the, the the current models for 40k are slightly bigger than the models 20 years ago were for 40k so i think slightly over half an inch is, is probably an appropriate scale for yeah. sure um great um so we're going to be playing more tts soon um I'm aware we've talked a lot about Inquisitor there, and um, we're recording this in a slightly odd uh, order today. I, I, I want to make sure that this episode isn't too long for people. Uh, so I think we'll probably wrap things up there, unless anyone has any closing thoughts on uh, Inquisitor. Um, what I was going to say is I think, you know, we've obviously got all our own characters designed in a whole campaign to look forward to, so we'll, we'll check back in another day when that when, when that kicks off fully, this is more just a, an intro to the game and yeah, of our um, our excitement for upcoming content. Cool, I like that. Um, yeah, sort of introduce the characters, the dramatist personae as they are in in the book. Um, it is very theatrical, isn't it? Um, join us after the break where we will be talking about open play. Welcome back to Open Play, um, and our glorious arbitrator, uh, Alex, <laughs> is going to uh, run us through the kind of thought process um, behind putting together um, a Necromunda campaign with a uh, kind of petrol-themed twist. Mad Maxi-themed twist. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. So um, I have been talking about for a very long time about doing an, an Ash Wastes campaign. And for those of you who don't know why I'd be talking about that, is because the Ash Wastes is actually a very significant part of the Necromunda canon and has been for a very long time. For those of you who don't know, the Ash Wastes is effectively the entire planet of Necromunda that isn't a hive city uh, because the, the canon goes that the hive cities exist as basically giant like gargantuan hab units for life to exist because the rest of the planet has become completely uninhabitable, inverted commas. Mm. For anyone who's fans of Fallout or um, trying to think of the other Bethesda video game that's set in those sort of settings, um, Badlands. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of um, Judge Dredd, to be honest. Yeah, and, and, Meg and, Meg abso absolutely. Um, and then absolutely. everything yeah. else. And yeah, yeah the, the kind of imperial assumption that it's uninhabitable and then actually people do live there. So. Yeah. So I've done some previous episodes in season one where we spoke about playing Necromunda and I don't want to go into that too much. Necromunda, the latest version that came out in 2018 and it was a quite a big departure from the original game. Uh, it's now become a alternate activation based game, which I personally love. Um, there's some purists out there who don't like it and continues by the overall set and that's cool but for me i i like the fact that it's a game that you've got 10 models on the board and it's you go i go so you never sit around for half an hour an hour waiting for your turn not doing anything um it's and, and also you have to think about what you're the model you're moving because you could also be inviting a reaction 
from if you're a new opponent and that kind of interactivity is great. But it is still missing for me, the ash wastes. And the key component of the ash waste is vehicles and vehicle combat. Yeah. Uh, and the amazing thing about that is I've just reread Cardinal Crimpton. Yeah. Um, and even in that book, um, scabs get captured by two Orlocks riding bikes who um, affix a chain onto him and drag him behind the bikes. And yet we have still never seen yeah. model representation for um, the kind of transports and vehicles that the Necromunda Society are using. And, and the, Cal, the Cal Jericho books are full of vehicles and bikes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and hover transports and, yeah. and, and the rest of it. So I decided to take matters into my own hands, which may be rendered a bit pointless because the current Necromunda roadmap has a book that was meant to be at the end of this year, although I guess that's going to be pushed back. Yeah, they're at least and that's six the, months behind. Yeah, and that book has got a lot of question marks around it. There's been a lot of speculation on Yak Tribe and amongst the, the Necromunda community that that could be an Ash Waste expansion or at least the, a, a version of the old Outlanders book where you've got your scabbies and your rat skins, and although they're going to have to be very careful about how they repackage rat skins, admittedly, because um, Native American um, uh, tropes, uh, I, I think quite rightly, in this world needs to be um, thought yeah. out very carefully. Just a kind um, of cross thought on that, the the new Bone Splitters, um, Savage Oryx, uh, which I, I think the, the, the continued use of Savage Oryx is problematic, um, bone splitters is something they should have lent into a, a much more as a as a thematic title in Age of Sigma, but the um, the use of the masks uh, for the shaman in the new bone splitters tribe is much more of a um, reimagined AOS tribal mask than yeah. something that is a direct problematic lift from uh, or cultural appropriation. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, hopefully, if if they revisit those, and we know that the for Necro, to bring it back to Necromunda, they're bringing the cult of the Redemptionist back, uh, pretty clearly. Um, well, yeah, because of the, the the Warhammer community article with the Prometheum um, yeah. shoots, yeah, that or there's going to be um, uh, a Redemptionist arm of the Corridor itself. Yes, and that's um, my suspicion is, is that they're an alternative build within yeah. Cordor, um, kind yeah. of a more extremist faction. Um, I, I actually think we're going to get a model for Cardinal Crimson uh, based upon, there was a little tidbit at the bottom of that article. So those you don't know, that's the article, uh, um, I can't remember what they call it, the, it's, not, it's, a, it's a monthly Necromunda segment anyway, segment anyway, and it was February segment, I believe where there's a tidbit at the bottom that says, um, I will also be meeting one character who Cal Jericho has had a running in with in, in the past, and for yeah. my money, that is Cardinal Crimson. But um, anyway, so Ash Waste, I decided to take matters into my own hands and um, look to the Gorkamorka rule set, which will come as no surprise to anybody. Um, Rick, the, for those who don't know, Gorkamorka is a Rick Priestley rule set from the 90s, um, and it's actually mirrors pretty much the original um, Necromunda rule set, except it did have these vehicle combat rules. So what we're going to do for the Ash Waste campaign, and it is going to be carrying on from our previous Necromunda campaigns, is that is um, everybody's going to have access to vehicles. And you and I have both been building vehicles and painting vehicles 
uh, you've you've uh, managed to appropriate some new Primaris bikes for your Goliaths, yeah. which, are, which look fantastic. And the basic thought process I'm going through is, and the reason we're putting this in open is because this is obviously a completely unofficial rule set that is a very much a patchwork um, quilt of things I want to do, um, is we will take the vehicle combat rules, but give the vehicles an activation so that it's still 2018, you go, I go, uh, because the other thing with these um, Ash Wastes uh, scenarios, I want them to be multiplayer, because I yeah. think they would be more fun that way. Lots of uh, people careening around, and um, and as the arbitrator, uh, I've built a uh, I've built an Orlock war rig with, and that actually tows um, a shipping container compartment, and that is going to be um, very Mad Max style. Us, um, the Orlocks, uh, accompanying a wild snake um, shipment across the ash waste, and then going to invite. You guys, so for, for context of this, and that's not only yourself, Adam, but also Rob Feldman, uh, Donald Taylor, and Matt Sherrup, who have all built um, uh, amazing representations of your basic Gorka Morka vehicle tropes, which is bike, buggy, track, or truck. Mm -hmm. And um, so Matt's gone for a Cordor chariot for his truck, which is just phenomenal. It yeah. just looks amazing. Even and all the, of um, the, what are the, the mechanical steeds from Admec. Yeah. So he bought two, two boxes of the Cerberus. Um, That's it. Yeah. Cer the Cerberus. And, uh, and he's used the surplus Cerberus as um, bikes. So he's got Cordor uh, fanatical cavalry, which it, yeah. it just looks great and it just works. Um, and it works in a waste context because it is meant to be a lot of this technology that's meant to be for Imperial Army use um, does end up on the black market. And it's it's the ash waste has often been setting for blank jitsu as well, which yeah. is uh, basically a creative arm of 40k for John Blanche fans to get all of their weird and wonderful grim dark um, thought processes down on into a model. Which is uh, interesting because it is actually a bit of a successor of Inquisitor, of course, which of course we're is. talking about elsewhere in this episode. Yeah. So um, I guess just to package this up a little bit more succinctly, for those of you who would be interested in trying to add some vehicle combat into your games, I have managed to play test it a couple of times with Mr. Fellman between lockdowns when we were just about able to do that for a very narrow window. Yeah. Um, the... The 1990s vehicle combat rule set around. Um, so you always have to make, you've got normal moves and booster moves. So your vehicle moves forward three inches and then can turn. It has to use a template for turning, which effectively is anywhere up to 45 degrees. You can then boost, but for every time you boost, if those of you play Blob Bowl, it's a similar mechanic to go for it. Okay. But it gets more difficult every time and you can do it an infinite amount of times. Um, in theory, so in theory, uh, but if you fail it, then you spin out. So it starts on the two plus, it then goes to the three plus, and then all subsequent ones are a fifty percent chance. I hit four plus. So if you want to get across the board in one hit, and you're happy to keep rolling the dice, you can do it. And it's if so you can't you can't fall over as a vehicle. So how does spinning out work? Do you just end up facing in a random direction and yeah, lose momentum? So, 
it is exactly that. You 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 have to turn the vehicle. You lose momentum. Uh, you're facing the wrong way, which because as I've just said, turning is a template. If you end up completely facing the wrong way, it might take you a while to get out of that. Sure. Crashing is also a thing. Ramming is a thing. Chasing is a thing, which I loved because it allows for people to activate outside of their own activation. So if I get my truck alongside your bike yeah. in my go and say, I'm chasing you, every time you move, I get to choose whether I want to roll another booster dice to try and keep up with you. Yeah. Um, and then what I've said is that um, there's going to be certain situations. It'll probably be uh, custom-made gang tactics cards. I'm going to allow for somebody to shoot out of sequence if they successfully keep up, because that is in the, the Gorka Morka rule set yeah. as well. And basically, to Rick Priestley's credit, he just he basically built, I think, what is actually the Ash Waste game, but they chose to put it in the uh, the, op, the Orc setting just because it was very ramshackle and it was very random and it was very um, uh, sort of disorganised and, and quite feral. Yeah. But actually, it translates beautifully into Necromunda, so I just, just want to use it and give it a go. So that's going to be us. Hopefully, it will zero not too, in the not-too-distant future. Um, I have been a bit fussy. People are only going to be able to participate if they have cool-built custom vehicles that are fully painted because I think we all agree this is definitely a hobbyist thing. It's not to be gatekeeper. Anyone can turn up and join in, but I just want to make sure that we are kind of got a minimum standard there. And we had that. Um, I mean, there's precedent for that in our Nurkamunda campaign in general, right? I think yeah. there was never a requirement for everything to be painted, but just that each subsequent game you had to have made um, some progress, noticeable progress, um, yeah. which is essential anyway in a in a campaign because you know you have a new ganger or um, hangers on or new equipment, and you know you, yeah. it, it progresses. So actually, it's not it's not yeah. like say Blood Bowl. Um, where you paint your team and you have skill rings and you might, you know, it's it's a much more kind of chess called it kind of system where you say, right, this has this, you know, it's it's much more WYSIWYG and it's much more um, um, holistic in that sense of just being like, no, if I can't see the thing, you're not firing that weapon. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and there's, and there's kind of no excuse for it now with just the volume of everything's plastic. So you, yeah, and it's not difficult to get hold of um, various bits and pieces, and also the the actual range of guns that are available in Necromunda are pretty pretty minimal. Which actually brings me on to my next point. The other piece that I did have to link together. So I've got these two rule sets side by side: Underhive twenty eighteen and mm -hmm. Gorka Morka nineteen ninety two. And the other thing that's that, so the first thing that leapt out was that the Necromunda dice, the um, the rapid fire dice, is directly a Gorkamorka mechanic, but it was just done with a regular D6. Right. And it's the same probabilities. So so with that, um, does each each side of the D6 have something on a chart, whereas now you have symbols or something? Correct, exactly. But they're all exactly the same. So you've got rapid fire three, two, one, and effectively misfire or gun jam. Brilliant. And they are equally weighted in the old Gorkamorka table. So I was like, this suggests to me that the design team consciously were using the old priestly rule sets anyway when kind of reimagining these games. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, there were there were there were sustained fire and rapid fire dice in one of the editions of Necromunda as well. I wouldn't be surprised yes. if it was the same table as the Gorkamorka one. It, it is. They, they were very closely. So Necromunda first edition and Gorkamorka were very similar games. Very similar games. Um, but they weren't alternate activations, so that's the component that I had to kind of um, reintroduce into this. But for all the playtesting, Rob and I pushed around a, a, a couple of bikes each. Our riders, I mean, one of my riders even fell off his bike, stood up, grabbed an auto gun and shot a, another guy off his, off his bike, and then they ended up having an on-foot standoff. Yeah. And it was very thematic and it did work and it was really, really good fun, but it is random as hell, so it's not, again, it's, not, it, it's a game designed for fun. Uh, I think the big piece that I've had to do is just to drop the Necromunda weapons into the Gorkamorka setting because Orcs didn't have plasma guns, <laughs> obviously. Thank God. Um, thank God. Um, but actually, the strength levels and the AP levels, when you look at AP, because for those who don't know, the vehicle combat in Gorkamorka is very specific, so you roll to see which area of the vehicle you hit and then there's a separate table to tell you the result of that. So on a 10, I hit your engine, but on a one, it might just ricochet off or, or slow you down or something. But on a six, your engine blows up and your vehicle blows up. So there's actually quite a lot of successful dice rolls you have to make for a vehicle to actually go out of action. Mm. It's not just you have to do five wounds and it's gone. You have to, you have this sequence of numbers that specifically have to come up. Uh, which historically was quite difficult because all of the guns are strength four, strength five. So in my head, it was, well, actually, we have got some players with some strength seven plasma guns. It doesn't really matter because actually a plasma gun should make an absolute meal of a, of a bike. It should be doing that. That's a yeah. thing that it should have. So, um, but, but also, I suppose... Um you're making a conscious choice to bring a, let's call it a tank buster weapon, because, you know, the vehicles are costing presumably a fair amount within your your gang allocation, um, or rather you're giving us fewer points to start with and the, the vehicles are free, is that right? Yeah, so you hit the nail on the head. So I tried to do points for vehicles and I, and I gave up because, A, what's the point? <laughs> a, pun. Um, but, but, but B, there's a... There's, an enjoyment piece around this, which is, you know, let's take Matt, for example, he's gone at great cost in both expense and time to build these magnificent models. Why would I suddenly turn around and say, oh, sorry, Matt, you haven't got enough points to use all of them? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to do that. So it's going to be um, a very simple system, which won't be balanced, but I, for, for Basin, this is um, the open section, so I don't care. Yep. It's going to be, if you have, um, a truck and three bikes that's transport capacity for five models in your truck including your driver and with three guys riding your bikes right so please also bring eight foot models along with you and that's your gang allocation you must have a leader possibly a champion i'd like to see a juve in there because um that's part of the game mm -hmm. the rest of them are gangers and i'm just going to ask everybody to submit their lists a week or so before we play because Gork and Walk has also got a very rich vein of vehicle accessories like wrecking balls, additional armor, etc. So actually, Adam, you've only built two bikes as things stand, right? Yeah. So if that's all, so if that's all you bring, then it makes sense for me to say, do you know what? You can have extra armor on all on all structural points of all those bikes because other, you don't want to go out the game too quickly, otherwise it'd just be a bit rubbish. Yeah. 
So, and it's, I'm just going to try and internally balance it by reallocating equipment or telling somebody, no, you can't bring that melter gun. Yeah. Yeah. It's been an amazing hobby project for me. I've, I've loved it. Um, I have a vague kind of idea of getting the, um, the one that literally just looks like a dune buggy from Speed Freaks um, and just having a couple of Goliaths sat in that and maybe putting an auto, auto cannon on the roof on, on the pencil or something. But um, yeah, at the moment, mine are pretty stripped back. There's no firearms on the bike. There's no firearms on the trike. Um, I haven't added a, a standing platform. So the trike just has one rider at present. Um, I, I, it could realistically take a second, but it's not modeled on. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I think we're still far enough off it being in person that I've got time to make one more. But yeah, I'm certainly, you know, compared to the, the fleets of kind of mechanical steeds that we're facing. But then, you know, that's Cordor and that's Cultists. Yeah, you know, and if we're going after a mission objective, and I, I quite like the Gorkamorka scenarios back in the day where there was a rolling table. Um, they were quite fun, you know, where you you literally move the the terrain six inches every turn. And then oh, if it, so if it so drops that, off one board edge, you put it back on the other one. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's, um, and they reprinted that or a version thereof for jet bike races in White Dwarf. Yes. that year, didn't they? So and it was Gav Thorpe with um, yeah. Eldar versus a land speeder or something. And uh, yeah, I, I I was thinking we could do that. There'll be so in, in the scenario where you guys are going to be chasing after the wild snake um, truck, uh, which has been taken from the House of Iron book by the way, because there's actually reference to a distillery that's under Orlock control that exists in the ash wastes. Yeah. It makes a very specific vintage of wild snake as a result. Um, the If that truck drives off the edge of the table, then I'm probably just going to reset the table, put the truck in the middle of the new table and start you all on the, on, on the edges, if that yeah. makes sense. Or, or we can move the train along, as you said, six inches and if it drops off the edge of the table then that's what happens and what i quite like um, about, about that is if you get spun out and if you fall off your bike or something and if you're moving four inches a turn and the table's moving six inches a turn you can just not be relevant anymore like the thing you're chasing is driving away from you and yeah, you're you're, you're bro out. you've broken your leg in a desert mm -hmm. you're not going to be getting the thing mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's that extra jeopardy so yeah, it's um, it's very much a, a work in progress. I, you know, I I, I suspect the um, specialist games department are going to be probably actually releasing their own version of vehicle combat for Necromunda at some point because uh, mm -hmm. there's just such quite a big demand for it. But if they don't, uh, we now have this, and if they do, it's been really fun knitting it together. And if and. We're going to use it and really enjoy it. And thanks to, uh, in particular, Matt Lyons at Pro Painted Studios, who has yeah. um, uh, lovingly recreated the, the Gorka Morka turning template in acrylic for us and customised them for, for all the players that are going to be playing. And I, I, I can't wait for the events, just A, because we're all in the same room and pushing some toys about, but B, I, I do think it's genuinely going to be wild. It's going to be an and if and if Games Workshop specialist games give us vehicle rules, then great. I built some vehicles, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's yeah. fine. Yeah. I'll buy the new ones probably, I mean, but we well, can play it immediately. Well, there's there's one thing that's certain. Even if they do rules for um, vehicles in Necromunda, I can't see them doing a model set for it because uh, it, it. Do you know what I mean? It, it yeah. would be really. It just as a range, it wouldn't necessarily make sense. So I think it would be very much a, here's a rule set and you do you. And um, you know, 
you know, you've got the Atalan Jackals from Gene Sealer Colts, you've got the Speed Freaks vehicles, um, there's plenty of Mechanicus stuff, Imperial, mm-hmm. uh, Astra Militarum, so, like, there are a lot of vehicles, it, it, it's all possible. The, the Gene Stealer Colt range is interesting because Gene Stealer Colts are quite, are made up of two, one, one of two arms, right? Um, or yeah. multiple arms, actually, for Gene Stealers, but, um, and one of those is uh, Miners, because the, the yeah. canon being that a gene stealer ends up in a in a mine shaft somewhere and impregnates somebody and a cult kind of builds out from this mining colony. Um, and actually all of those vehicles that gene stealer cults use are just standard imperial uh your standard template constructs uh, mining vehicles. So actually for my Orlock build, um using Atalan Jackals made sense because actually those are probably the bike perceivably that these guys are riding around on they're the ones they've got the easiest access to because they are themselves miners yeah so i think the vehicle the, the vehicle range already supports um the existing vehicle range already supports the canon uh it's yeah. just about um the kind of the level of customization you want to go into mm-hmm. the only thing i did do and i would admit anyone who's listening who may want to do this themselves you can take a view on this yourself i did there was a few people that contacted me and said, oh, what if I was to do, you know, they've got their hands on Eldar jet bikes and things like that. And I have to admit, I did kind of say I'm not too keen on that. And it's yeah. not to be gatekeepery. It was more just, I just really like us to have a few games where you've got the ramshackle. Well, there's also, going on. there's also established canon that jet bikes are super rare. I mean, I know yeah. they're, they're creeping into 40K, because of uh, the custodies, but um, the Dark Angels have one jet bike. Yeah, one. Yeah, the, dark, the first, the first Space Marine Legion has a single jet bike. I mean, that may well change in the coming years, but you know, you're not just going to have civilian jet bikes in this setting. They exist in Eisenhorn uh, in the novel, and you know there are anti-grav tech things for Van Saar coming out, or they might even be out by now. Um, they are out. I've they're out. They're out. Um, you know, but that's sort of a bit, that's a bit more, they're a bit more civilian and going around the spire and being used in the underhive. Yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. also, they're, ho- they're hoverboards as well. They're not, they're not yeah. a full military jet bike. And actually yeah. they do move, they move quickly in, in comparison to, um, you know, other things that move in Necromunda as it were, they do move quicker than that, but they're not, uh, yeah. a, you know, a supersonic jet bike. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just feel like the, the ash wastes itself is suitable to wheeled vehicles and tracked vehicles um you know you, you're not going to be want to be flying around in this kind of horrible irradiated desert it's not going to do good things for your jet engine so i think that that's a really posh jet bike yeah yeah, yeah it'll, it'll get all dinged up yeah yeah it'll get scratched yeah, you, don't yeah. you don't want to do that you although there is there is a there is a, a, a character there is a dramatic persona character in Necromunda, and i can't remember his name but he does have a jet bike Oh, is it one person who's got one, but I think it's meant to be a like a, a Vansar lord yeah. or a, a very, very, very wealthy gilder. Yeah. Um, so again, it comes to the point that it still supports the point that they're rare. Um, yeah. That's so that yeah, that's the only thing decision that I did take was just to make sure it kind of stayed on scope. Um, but I, I I did try to communicate the scope before people went out and bought stuff. Yeah. Um, which I think was the, the right thing to do. Um, but 
yeah, as it, it's ticked to the boxes, right? It's been an amazing modeling project and hopefully as a game, it works. And if it doesn't, then especially studios, if you could just release your own rule set and <laughs> so they can continue using the models we've lovely built, it'd be great. Fantastic. Well, I'm massively looking forward to it. Um, that brings us to the end of our episode. Again, I've tried to tried to record it shorter, but we're just so excited about seeing people and playing games in person that we seem to be able to fill a couple of hours without really uh, breaking too much of a sweat. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd echo Alex in saying thanks to uh, Matt at Pro Painted for sorting us out with some custom um, uh, gauges for uh, Tony Gubbins. Uh, yeah, Tony Gubbins for for the ash wastes, and it's quite nice to see my 1997 cardboard kind of given a new lease of life uh, for twenty back now. For 2021 you, you can have them back now because i've been thank you when i moved flats i was absolutely terrified you know i could probably put one up on ebay and you know it's it's not the end of the world it's just the nostalgia um so yeah um thanks again to uh, jay channer obviously for, for providing uh, the musical interludes that i will be editing in and you will have heard already um and thanks to our guest host george who at this point had disappeared so won't be saying a fond farewell in person um and thanks alex for giving up another saturday morning to talk toys with me i've really enjoyed it so no, it's, always, it's also sunday isn't it so it is uh, sunday morning i appreciate time is meaningless yeah, time is meaningless, um, and I'm going to go and make some more coffee. Uh, we'll catch you next time on AngelCast, uh, where we're going to go into a bit more depth about our, well, Alex and mine in particular, uh, Inquisitor characters for the upcoming um, Petrograd uh, campaign. Thanks for listening.